This passage is John 15, 18 through 16, 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written on their law must be, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they do not know the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you remember that I have told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm uh, a little nervous up here because I'm a bit clumsy and there are a number of things that could break in spectacular fashion uh, if I'm not careful. Um, that one especially. Um, my name is Joey, by the way. If we've never met, you now know more about me than I know about you. So please come introduce yourself uh, after the service uh, so I can say hi and learn your name. Um, I'm one of the lead pastors here at Faith, and so part of my job is to think about what, what the church, what Christianity in America will look like in the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years. And so uh, this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I read... Um, a really interesting interview with a sociologist named James Davison Hunter. Uh, he's a Christian who teaches sociology at the University of Virginia and serves on the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he was asked in an interview, what do you think the church will look like 50 years from now? And he gave this really interesting response. And this, this is a little long, so bear with me, but I, I think it's, it's important for us. He said this, Christians will be far from perfect, but the church will be at the center of their lives for worship and formation. These churches will be multi-ethnic, but also multi-class, their population not unlike the population of the larger community. They will creatively care for the dispossessed, but their engagement with the world will not end there. They will be active and productive in every sphere of life, the service industry, skilled labor, education, business, philanthropy, science, medicine, law, the arts, academia, and yes, politics too. And at every level, for there will be not only, there'll not only be theologies to support them, but resources to prepare, launch, and sustain them. They will be active in overlapping networks, institutions, and communities that are local, but that also transcend region. And because they pursue excellence in all spheres of life, they'll be engaged in the most difficult problems of the day. The church will likely be smaller than it is today, but only where the acids of modernity further dissolve the residues of cultural Christianity. Yet its influence will be disproportionate to its size. The ambitions to dominate America will be gone, but the public sphere will in no way be neglected. I think it's a profound vision of what the church could be, but he doesn't end there because he says in a, in a bit, this is 
than how the world looks at the church. In 50 years, there's no question in my mind that Christians will be considered even more odd than they are today by virtue of what they believe and the morality by which they live. And yet, because they are fully engaged in each sphere of life as individuals and communities of character, they will serve as a credible and creditable conscience of the overlapping communities they inhabit. Odd, to be sure, but no one will deny that they do extraordinary good in the world. Neither will anyone doubt that they serve the cities and communities in which they live very well. How would you like to be odd? Does anybody aspire to that oddness? Like, my goal in life is to grow up and be a weird dad. Um, that's just, I think that's amazing. You know, embarrassing your kids all the time. Yeah, some of you are, like, tapping your husbands. <laughs> that's my goal in life. I, I want to be odd. And as I read this interview this week while preparing for the sermon, you know, it struck me um, because of this compelling vision for what the church could be, but also because it's necessarily coupled with, with oddness, as if oddness is required for impact. And in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus warns his disciples and warns us uh, that the world is going to look at us as odd. If we're really following him, they're at least going to look at us as odd. And depending on where and when we live, it could be even worse than that. John 15 is where we're going to be today, the second half of John 15, starting in verse 18. Actually, we're going to spend most of our time just in the first couple of verses, 18 and 19. Uh, so while you're turning there, I'll set the context for it. But uh, as I set the context for this passage, I just want to communicate the fundamental idea of what we're looking at this morning. The basic premise of this passage is that a relationship with Jesus creates conflict with the world. A relationship with Jesus always creates conflict with the world, but that gives us an opportunity to respond to the world in the way Jesus did. So if you're not already there, turn to John 15. Uh, if you remember, we're at the point in Jesus' last teaching where he and his 11 closest followers, you know, the guys who would go on to become the leaders of the early church, they've eaten the Passover dinner together, and, and they're now walking out from Jerusalem. They're heading out of the city toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went there pretty often with his disciples, so they're heading, it was pretty natural for them to head out there after dinner. And Jesus knows it, but his guys don't. He's about to be betrayed and arrested and killed. So while they're walking and talking, he's sharing with them the most important things he thinks they need to know to face all of the conflict and uncertainty that's to come in the next few days and weeks and months. So as Jesus is walking into what he knows are his last free moments on earth, he takes a bit of time to explain to them why they're about to feel like they just don't really belong anymore. Why they're about to become odd. Look at verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is telling them that they're going to feel like they don't really belong anymore. They're going to be looked at as at least odd because a relationship with Jesus creates conflict with the world, giving them and us an opportunity to respond to the world as Jesus did. And that's a concept that's important for us to understand. It's just as important for us as it was for them. They're about to face arrest and imprisonment and persecution. Eventually, each and every one of these guys will be killed or exiled, beheaded, stabbed to death, clubbed to death, burned to death, or crucified upside down. Those are their choices. And Jesus is warning them 
preparing them for what's about to come. Because he's going to charge them with the task of taking the good news of reconciliation with God through Jesus out into a world that is radically different from the predominantly Jewish areas they were raised in. You remember, these are rural, blue-collar, working man, ordinary tradesmen type guys. And they're going to be first, the first ones to take the gospel to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which was the political, economic, religious, and ideological center of Israel. It was a place that none of these guys really felt comfortable. I mean, they'd only go up there a couple of times a year for the various religious festivals. It, that's, it's like taking um, a farming couple from Monroe, Iowa, which is the, the little town I grew up in, about an hour's drive outside of Des Moines, 2,000 people, taking them and sending them to a mashup of New York City, Washington, D.C., Silicon Valley, and Atlanta, like all slammed together, and said, go preach. And they're supposed to go with no formal education, no real training other than the three years they spent with Jesus which turns out to be enough. But the spread of the gospel isn't supposed to stop there. They're to take the good news out to the areas around Jerusalem, to the suburbs, if you will, to Judea and Samaria, and from there to the ends of the earth, to the pagan, pluralistic, every place has their own religion, my religion is better than yours, cities surrounding Israel. Each place with its own gods, with its own religious center, each with its own economic systems built around the religious worship in that place. And each of these towns is going to be confronted with this, this new religion that is so unlike any other religion that its early critics called it not a religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And their world is a lot like ours. I mean, our, our technology is better, but our humanity is the same. We call their society pagan pluralism. Ours is just secular pluralism. That doesn't mean non-Christian or non-religious. It just means that as individuals, instead of looking for meaning and satisfaction, freedom, identity, security, and hope in, uh, in a transcendent other that is outside the world and outside of ourselves, outside of the universe, we, we now by default, it's just the way we work. We don't, we've never learned to think in any other way. We by default look for meaning and satisfaction and freedom and all those things within this world, in ourselves, in, in each other, in relationships, you know, without looking to anything outside of the world to provide it. So you could say our spirituality is more sophisticated, maybe, or more autonomous, or more individual, uh, but we're still driven by tribalism, by racism, by institutional loyalty, by nationalism. Um, but we've, we've added to it this drive for individual freedom and autonomy, and while we're at it, we've just dissolved all of the main institutions and norms of behavior that used to kind of hold societies together. That's our context, the context in which we get to understand and live out the fact that a relationship with Jesus creates conflict with the world. But that gives us an opportunity to respond to the world in the same way that Jesus did. So if you haven't picked it up already, I've got three basically main points today. A relationship with Jesus creates conflict with the world, giving us an opportunity to respond to the world as Jesus did. A relationship with Jesus creates conflict with the world and gives us a responsibility or a, a uh, opportunity to respond to the world the way Jesus did. So, let's take these one at a time. First, a relationship with Jesus. When you became a Christian, when I became a Christian, my allegiance shifted. My heart became located in a new place. My, my heart found its home somewhere different. 
Now, we've been walking through these chapters, uh, these few chapters of John, uh, kind of after the Last Supper until Jesus' arrest during this Lenten series. Uh, and you, remember, you may remember last week we looked at life in the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he's offering us a vital organic relationship uh, with him in which we draw from him a new life and find in him a new source of life. Uh, new life means new identity. New security, new meaning and satisfaction, new freedom and new hope. All of these things that we find in Christ now, uh, no longer looking for them in the world around us or in the things around us. Our being is grounded in a new reality. Our sense of ourselves is, is located or anchored to a, something new, something solid that we didn't have before. Take a look at these verses again, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, Jesus says in verse 19 something really key for us to understand. I chose you out of the world. Which echoes what he said just a few verses up in in verse 15, 16. He said... You didn't choose me, I chose you. Here's what's happening. If we were to flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 8, we read about Jesus explaining who he is to some questioners. I'm the light of the world, he says. And they're willfully not getting it or just confused, and they can't figure out what he means when he talks about his father and who he is and being the light of the world. They're not getting it, so he says, look, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I'm from outside of this world. And if you take that verse and understand it by putting it together with with what Jesus is saying here, I am not of this world and I chose you out of this world, it, it brings into focus who a person becomes when they choose to follow Christ. See, by definition, Christians are those people whose allegiance has shifted from this world to another world. From the kingdoms here to another kingdom. From the the kingdoms here to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom to come. Because someone out of this world has chosen us, has loved us, has taught us. And so our hearts are no longer at home in this world. We who are Christians have been chosen out of this world. A couple months ago, I read a really fascinating biography an autobiography. Um, a guy named J.D. Vance wrote a book called Hillbilly Elegy. You might have heard of it. Uh, and he, he tells the story of growing up in poverty in rural Appalachia uh, and managing to move out of poverty to Ohio State University and then to Yale University with a law degree and now managing a, a, a financial investment firm. He says that his book is an attempt to show people what upward mobility looks like from the inside, how difficult it is. And what's fascinating about the book, what really caught my attention as I read through it, is that at at every step of his journey out of poverty, someone from outside of his world chose him and pursued him and loved him and invested in him. And and that allowed him to move from the world he was in into uh, another social strata. It it always took somebody from the outside saying, I'm going to choose you and invest in you for him to be able to move 
out of that world into a new one. So it began with a grandmother who had a stable home, unlike his mom, uh, older Marines who taught him how to live like an adult, mentors who helped him get into Yale, a, a Yale professor who took him under his wing, a girlfriend who explained how to navigate all these weird social situations that, that is hiring and finding of lawyers, all of that. Uh, he needed each of these persons at each of these phases to give him the social capital and the resources to actually move out of that world into the next social strata. And it's important for us to recognize that we too, like, like Vance and his story, have been chosen. We've been chosen. God chose us long before we ever considered choosing him. And, and God didn't choose us like in the autobiography I read where when somebody chooses you and invests in you, they give you a chance to work hard to achieve some new status. No, we've been chosen by God and he does the hard work of making us Christians through Jesus' sacrifice. See, everything we do in our lives, uh, religion or otherwise, tells us what we have to do in order to become that thing. Have you ever noticed this? If you want to be a Buddhist, say, here's what you need to do to be a Buddhist. If you want to be a rock climber, here's what you have to do to be a rock climber. If you want to be another religion, here's what you have to do to follow that religion. If you want to be a whatever, fill in the blank, here's what you have to do. And, and only Christianity says, you want to be a Christian? You can't do it. It has to be done to you and for you. You know, everyone who's a Christian, I've realized, looking back on how they became a Christian, recognizes that it's God who called them, God who softened their hearts, God who enabled and empowered them to repent and, and turn to him. Christians are people who have been chosen by God's grace. And because we've been chosen and loved, our allegiance has shifted from this world to Christ. Look up at verse 12, uh, in chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. See, we've been chosen, but we've also been loved. Jesus says, as I love you. And if we, you know, you keep reading that, and he says, you're not my servants anymore. You're, you're my friends. We're a people, Christians are a people whose allegiance has shifted from the kingdoms here to the kingdom of heaven because we've been chosen and we've been loved. Loved by a God who created us to have a relationship with him. You know, we've, we've rebelled against his desire and his design for us, thinking that we could find a better deal if we struck out on our own. We've been warned that this would lead to suffering, to disillusionment, to death, but we did it anyway. We've all done it. We've destroyed our, our lives as quickly as an eight-year-old would destroy your car if you gave him the keys to it and let him do whatever he wanted. I know, because when I was six, I got in my dad's car and he had left the keys in and managed to back it out of our driveway into the church field across the street and put a big dent right in the back of it. It was impressive. Um, luckily, I didn't know how to turn the car on, or I could have caused a lot more damage. <laughs> but that's what we've done with our lives. We have found our slaves, ourselves enslaved to our own desires, to our own needs and wants, and so enslaved that we, we mistake this slavery for freedom and live a Stockholm Syndrome-like existence in the world, going back to the same things over and over and over again that we think are going to bring us satisfaction or help us find some sort of purpose, only to find ourselves bereft again. For all of us, to one degree or another, our lives are a history of broken dreams, broken relationships, broken marriages, broken careers, and broken people. And we got there through our own choices, or the choices of other people. You know, and in the midst of all of that, God loved us. 
He loved us by opening our eyes to our own rebellion against him. He loved us by showing us our own propensity to destroy everything we touch. He loved us by, by moving towards us, by pursuing us. By, he loved us by identifying with us in Jesus, in God himself, the second person of the Trinity, becoming human and suffering all the things we suffer. Uh, he loved us by offering us life purchased at the cost of his own death. See, Christians are those who have experienced that love and who have responded to that love. Christians are those who, in light of that, that love, recognize how sinful and rebellious we are and see that love for the amazing and gracious and inexplicable and completely undeserved thing that it is. This love that, that's captured really well in a hymn we sometimes sing in, in the first service that says, Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? And having experienced that love, our allegiance has shifted from the things of this world to Jesus. Because we've been chosen. We've been loved. And because we've been chosen, and because we've been loved, and because our allegiance has shifted to Christ, we just don't make sense to the world around us anymore. We just don't make sense. We're odd now. Because a relationship with Jesus is going to create conflict with the world. Don Carson is a professor of New Testament studies up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School outside of Chicago. And on this passage, he commented saying, Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. Look again at verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, I have loved you. I have chosen you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. You've experienced my love. I've loved you in the same way the Father loved you. Me And that love has blown you away. You've never experienced anything like it before. You won't experience any love greater than this ever again. In fact, you don't even understand how much I love you, Jesus is hinting, because you haven't yet even seen me die on your behalf. But he's telling them, because you've experienced my love, you've aligned yourself with me, you, you've built a relationship with me, you've drawn life from me like a branch draws life from the vine, your heart doesn't belong to the rest of the world anymore. It belongs to me. You're mine now, Jesus is telling them, because of that love we share. And now that you've been uprooted, your heart doesn't lie in your old country. Jesus is saying, I've cut your roots to your old ambitions. I've cut your roots to your old dreams. I've cut your roots to all the things that used to give you meaning and used to give you belonging and used to give you significance. And you can still go back to all those places, to those people, to those activities. You can participate in the same things that used to give you the feeling of significance and meaning. But now that you're not rooted in them, now that you're rooted in Jesus, now that you're rooted in me, he says, you'll, you'll always feel like you don't quite belong. Those things won't be for you what they once were, not now that you're drawing life from me. That's what my love will do for you. So Jesus is looking at his disciples in these two verses and, and essentially saying the world fundamentally does not understand what we're talking about because so many have not had an experience of my love. 
At the very least, Jesus is warning these guys, they're not going to understand you. They're going to look at you with suspicion because you're unpredictable. They're going to look at you with a bit of mistrust because you can't be owned. They're, they're going to look at you with fear because you don't make sense. I've been working through a, a biography of St. Francis of Assisi written by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, and in this biography, Chesterton is trying to make sense of St. Francis. Uh, he's a... Well, you know, he's asking this question, how do you understand a man who was kind to animals but harsh on himself, who praised the sun but hid in caves, who loved women but lived a celibate life, who tried to end the crusades by talking to Muslims, who prayed and danced and talked to animals, who rejected his family and cast away all of his material possessions, who loved life but lived as an ascetic? How do you understand a guy like that? Because if our kids started acting like that, we'd take him to the psychiatrist. And try to get them fixed. Chesterton says you can't really understand a guy like Francis without understanding the fact that he was deeply in love. Listen to this. Critics of St. Francis find him a stumbling block, a stumbling block because to them religion is a philosophy. It's an impersonal thing. And it is only the most personal passion that provides here an approximate earthly parallel. A man will not roll in the snow for a philosophy. He will not go without food in the name of an idea. He will do things like this, or pretty nearly like this, under a quite different impulse. He will do these things when he is in love. The reader cannot even begin to see the sense of a story that may well seem to him a very wild one, until he understands that to this great mystic, his religion was not a thing like a theory, but a thing like a love relationship. See, if we've been chosen by Jesus, if we've been loved by Jesus and taught and draw life from him, then the life of a Christian just doesn't make sense to anyone who hasn't experienced that love. We're going to be odd now. Look at verse 19 again. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, Jesus is making a profound point about everyone who chooses to follow him. You are not of the world. You're not of the world anymore. Having been loved and chosen by Jesus, your home is now somewhere else. You're not of this world. You don't belong here anymore. You don't make sense here anymore. And he's telling them and he's telling us, you'll know you don't belong because you will be rejected. You'll be rejected in varying degrees at different places and different times, kind of directly related to how acceptable Christianity and Christian ideas and ideals have become in a broader culture. But, but chances are, if there are, for us, if there are no non-Christians in your life who are at least kind of annoyed that you don't really make sense, uh, then, then we've got one of two problems, or maybe both. Uh, one, either we're never around non-Christians at all, or two, our Christianity isn't very robust and doesn't really make us all that different from the world. It's more like a theory than it is like a relationship. Because if you glance at the beginning of, of verse 18, that little word, if, is there. And don't let it fool you. Jesus isn't, he's not saying that, that for some people, some of the time, there will be opposition. When he says if here, it's not a possibility, it's a certainty. If you're a Christian, you will face opposition and misunderstanding. And in some cases, that opposition is going to turn into persecution and into hatred. 
when I was growing up, I was uh, pretty active in the youth group at the little Baptist church, um, actually the same one that I accidentally backed my dad's car into their field. Um, but I, they didn't know it was me, so they let me in. And, and uh, every summer we would go up to Clear Lake, Iowa for um, the, the regular Baptist camp up there. Now you may know Clear Lake because that's where Buddy Holly died. Um, the plane crashed in the 50s. I, I knew Clear Lake because that's where the camp was, the regular Baptist camp. Um, regular, if you're not familiar with, with Baptist, that's just a denomination. That has nothing to do with the amount of prunes in our diet, though we had a lot of fun <laughs> joking about that. Come to the regular Baptist church. We'll straighten you out. Anyway, um, so I was there with, with friends, obviously, from high school, and my best friend was there that week, and, and he had spent the entire school year previous to this trying to get this one girl to go out with him. Um, that's what we called it back then, going out. It wasn't like boyfriend or girlfriend or anything, but he was, he was head over heels for her, and finally she agreed to go out with him, which was a big deal. And then the next week we went to camp, and he met this other girl from a couple of towns over from ours, and he wrote a note home to his brand new girlfriend and said, I'm sorry, but it's over. Dumped her in order to start dating this girl that he just met. And the rest of us were like, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. What's so special about this girl? And he was like, you guys, you just don't, you, you don't know her like I do. Like, you don't understand her. You don't, you don't know what, what she's like. And we thought he was crazy, and he was. I'm not saying that's how you should do relationships. Like, you should not write a letter home to someone and dump them from summer camp for this girl you just met a couple of days earlier. But the point of that story is not how bad he was at relationships, but how every relationship only makes sense when you're on the inside of it. Every love relationship only makes sense to the people on the inside of that relationship. Your relationship between you and your kids, between you and your spouse, between you and your parents, between you and your pet, it only makes sense to those on the inside of the relationship. And that's why those who have not yet experienced Christ's love won't understand your relationship with him. So when that happens, when you feel like you don't belong because you're a Christian, or when you feel like people don't understand you and you can't seem to help them understand or when you feel like your beliefs are no longer in fashion in the broader culture, don't be surprised. You're odd. You're not going to make sense. But don't let the fact that you're being rejected or that you've been rejected cause you to react as if this world were still your home, as if you still had a right to be accepted here. Remember, we are not of this world. We have been chosen out of this world and born into a new one. Because a relationship with Jesus is going to create conflict with the world. But that gives us an opportunity to respond the same way Jesus did. You know, it's kind of like going back uh, to your parents' house once you've grown up. I'm the oldest of five boys. I remember when I moved out to college, one of my younger brothers moved into my room. And he changed everything and he got rid of all of my Star Wars toys. And he made a mess of the place at least in my opinion, and I complained to him about it one time. I was like, what have you done to my room? And he just kind of looked at me and was like, you don't live here anymore. Like, this is not your room. Why would you expect me to keep it the same way for you? And when I went back that summer after my first year of school, I slept on a futon in the basement. That was now my room. See, being, being a Christian in this world is a lot like visiting your parents' house on vacation. It's not your house anymore. 
You don't really live there. Your true home is somewhere else. And you know, you go back and you still love the people there and you love the way the house feels and you love the memories of growing up in that house and you can make a contribution to the household, but it's not your home anymore. So you can't expect everything in it to cater to you, which my dad has made very clear to me every time I try to turn up the thermostat. (laughs) You don't live here. You're not paying this bill. Back down to 64. You know, but sometimes our hearts are drawn back to our old homes, right? As if this world were still our true home. And when that happens, we feel rejected by the world. We get defensive and antagonistic. We get angry and judgmental. We get annoyed and easily offended when essentially people just look at us and say, well, I mean, you don't live here anymore. Why would we cater to you? And when we're tempted to respond in those angry ways, we got to remember that's not how Jesus responded to the world. You know, there's a lot of websites, a lot of books and articles out there within easy clicking distance all telling you how Christians should interact with the world. Some, some people are writing from a perspective that Christians need to retreat from the world, create kind of a contingent that can keep itself pure and wait for judgment to come. Uh, others think that Christians need to aggressively defend themselves against the world, especially in the political arena. Uh, advocating an aggressive, defensive stance. Make them pay for taking away our Christian heritage. Pass laws so we don't lose our rights. Others are focused on being relevant to the world and and try to kind of present Christianity, sort of soften the hard hard edges and uh, uh, simplify theological commitments to where then eventually it just doesn't look all that even different. But you notice Jesus did not respond to the world in any one of those three ways. He didn't try to just be relevant, as if he came to give us an example of how to live, an example of what sacrificial love looked like, and a bunch of good quotes for us to put on our Facebook pages. He didn't come and defend himself against the world either, but allowed himself to be crucified. Nor did he just stay up in heaven and be like, that place is too far gone, I'm just going to wait for judgment. If we responded to the world the same way Jesus did, we can make a radical difference. And that's what he's calling us to. So just for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to borrow some ideas from James Hunter. He's the guy that I quoted at the very beginning when he talked about what the church could look like in 50 years. And he wrote a book in 2010 called To Change the World, and, and he advocates for an approach to the world that he says that he models off of how God approached the world in Jesus. So he has three main ideas. God pursues us, identifies with us, and offers us life through his sacrificial love. How did Jesus respond to the world? By pursuing us, identifying with us, and offering us life through his sacrificial love. See, God pursues us, and that that comes through pretty strongly in this passage over and over again. Jesus says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you first. I came to you, Jesus says. What would it look like if we pursued the world the same way Jesus pursued us? Now, I'm not saying we're supposed to be creepy about it. Don't go knock on your neighbor's door or like peek over the cubicle wall and be like, hey, I'm pursuing you in God's love. Like they will, they will find you odd and be annoyed with you, but it won't be because of your Christianity. It'll be because of your social awkwardness. So let's, let's not do that. But we are supposed to, to pursue the world the way God does. Over and over in Scripture, we're told that God chose us before we chose him. What if we chose the people right around us and chose to pursue them with the same love with which we were pursued? What kind of a difference could you make in your office 
or in your house or in your school or in your neighborhood or in the various communities that you are in, if you chose to pursue people with the same love that Jesus pursued you. God also identified with us. We've talked about it a little bit already. The second person of the Trinity, God himself, Jesus, became man, became like us in order to identify with us and with our humanity. Hebrews 4 tells us we don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. See, Jesus became a man. He became human. He put up with all the hard parts of being human in a fallen world. He did all the regular, normal things that humans do. He was tempted by all the things that humans are tempted by. As one, one paraphrase of the first part of, of John's gospel says, he became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. As I was sitting in my study at home typing this, I thought, I wonder how many houses I drive by in order to leave my neighborhood where I don't even know the names of the people who live in those houses. When we moved in, a good friend gave us a, an aerial map of our neighborhood where we could write down the names of everyone we met. And I, I didn't do it. That's why I don't know their names. But it would have been great if I had. Uh, the point is, like, we decided we wanted to move into a neighborhood so we could in, uh, intentionally pursue a, a geographical area with Jesus' love. And I'm sitting here six months later thinking I know exactly two neighbors. Now, obviously, these things take time, and I'm not saying there's a magic number of households you're supposed to be able to pursue or, or people you need to know. You, we're not called to pursue every single person in our neighborhood individually. And you could ask the same question of classmates in school, coworkers in your office, or, or people even walk by here at church. I'm not trying to guilt you or guilt myself into pursuing everyone. I just think we would do well to ask ourselves, am I pursuing anyone? Is there someone in my life, at home or at work, in my neighborhood or school, who needs to experience Christ's love, the same experience of Christ's love that you have had? Is there anyone that you are lovingly pursuing so intently that you can identify with them, that you have moved into their neighborhood? You know their story. You understand how they think. You, you, you empathize with them and share their emotions. What would happen if you and I intentionally pursued someone in our office or school or neighborhood or reading group or prayer club or whatever and, and pursued them not so that they could understand us, but so that we could understand them? Most of the time we pursue people who are different from us because we want them to understand us, to make ourselves feel better about being a little bit different. Jesus didn't, he's not like, he's not writing off differentness. We are not all the same. That's fine. But he still pursued us to identify with us. If you think about it, God did, Jesus didn't become man just so he could talk to us more easily. He became man to go through everything that we go through as humans. So who are you identifying with? Who are you pursuing so closely that you, you understand them? You see how alike the two of you are. You understand how their deepest drives and motivations are the same as yours. They're just looking to fulfill them in a different place. See, when we do, when we pursue and identify people, then it gives us the opportunity to offer life through sacrificial love. Throughout John's gospel, he records Jesus over and over again offering us life. John 1.4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He calls himself the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life. 
And it's a life that could only be made possible through his sacrificial love. We read the verse congregationally earlier. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What would it look like if you and I sacrificially loved those we pursued and identified with? How could sacrificial love change the boardrooms and the lunchrooms you serve in? Or the sports teams and the product launch teams that you're on? How would sacrificial love change the families and the neighborhoods you live in? We hope and we pray that it would change them much the same way that Jesus' sacrificial love changed us. God pursued us. God identified with us. God offered us life through his sacrificial love. And that's what's drawn our heart away from our old home, away from our old roots, away from our old lives, and into new roots, a new homeland, a new family. And as citizens of a new country, we will inevitably come into conflict with the citizens of our old homeland. It's unavoidable. Let me read again what I quoted at the very beginning from from James Hunter. In 50 years, there's no question in my mind that Christians will be considered even more odd than they are today by virtue of what they believe and the morality by which they live. And yet, because they are fully engaged in each sphere of life as individuals and communities of character, they will serve as a credible and creditable conscience of the overlapping communities they inhabit. (laughs) Odd, to be sure, but no one, no one will deny that they do extraordinary good in the world. Neither will anyone doubt that they serve the cities and communities in which they live very well. See, conflict with the world because of our relationship with Jesus uh, is an opportunity for us to respond to the world in the same way that Jesus did. To pursue the world, to identify with the world, to offer life to the world through sacrificial love. So when Jesus says, the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, He says, buckle up, you're in for an adventure of taking my love and sharing it with people who don't understand you. That's what he's called us to as well. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for Christ's words to his followers, these last few moments he had with them for just the the emotion that comes through them as he pours out his loving concern for them and for us facing a world that is at the very least incredulous and at the worst, hostile and full of hate. But hate does not give us the right to respond in kind, but the opportunity to respond as Jesus did. Lord, help us to pour ourselves out for those you are trying to reach with your love through us. In Jesus' name, amen.